Here's a question to start off today. If you were to try to launch a company and you knew that your product would likely cause the death of 6 million people in the next 12 months, how likely do you think you'd be in getting that business off the ground? I'd say it doesn't matter how good an entrepreneur you are, you'd have Buckley's chance. But that's precisely what the tobacco industry is doing with cigarettes killing millions of people every year. And the unfortunate truth is that many Australians actually have money invested in these companies. Whether they know it or not, many super funds still have big holdings in big tobacco. But since 2010, that number has dropped dramatically, and that's due largely to one woman, my guest today, Bronwyn King. She's not a fund manager, she's a doctor, and she's led a personal crusade to help the finance industry to wise up about the true impacts of investing in smoking. And as of last year, her team were responsible for getting a massive $1.3 trillion in pension dollars to be invested under tobacco-free policies. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. To me, Dr. King is a true influencer. She speaks with confidence and conviction. She's backed up by piles of research and she isn't easily intimidated. She's honed her pitch in boardrooms at the UN, even on the TEDx stage. She knows well the semantic gymnastics that can be played to dodge questions about how tobacco companies somehow make it into ESG funds. But this is not an issue that can be dealt with through engagement. There's no healthy dose of smoking. But that's Bronwyn's story. So let's get into it. You can find all the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you can spare me 30 seconds, please do leave me a review on iTunes because it's the best way to get the podcast pushing further up the rankings where more people will find us. Uh, Also, a quick shout out to my good friend, Nick Healy, who introduced me to the good doctor. And please note that this one was recorded on the 4th of March. So it was well before the coronavirus restrictions were in force and it would be the last time I was able to record in the studio. Hopefully, we'll be back in there soon. All right, enough out of me. Let's jump in to my conversation with Dr. Bronwyn King. Here we go. for coming up to Sydney to Hub Australia to have a chat today. So much better to do it face-to-face. Really enjoy it. Yes, I'm very committed to -to face-to-face meetings. And in fact, that's been a a very deliberate part of our work and our strategy because I have a bit of a theory that it's, it's very hard to connect with people unless you really do go and see them in person and have time to, to get to know them more than just a very uh, business-like transaction. For sure. And we have more options available for digital communications, which almost makes it more special. That's right. That's right. But it will be very interesting to see what happens this year, given we have uh, the coronavirus and a lot of uh, major in-person meetings are being cancelled, conferences are being rescheduled. So we will be challenged. But yes, we're very keen to embrace Skype, Zoom and all of those other technologies (laughs) as as quickly as we can. That's it. That's it. Well, in the intro, I gave people a bit of a rundown of your background. You've had a big five to 10 years. But what I'd love to roll back to is, is the start, this first moment when you were sitting there speaking with someone from your super fund and you asked them almost casually, by the way, what am I invested in? Mm, That's uh, exactly what happened. It was an afterthought. 
you know, this wasn't meant to happen. <laughs> so it's it's very funny to think of it like that because it turned out to be such a big moment in my life. But that's right, I was I was just meeting uh, with a representative from my super fund. It was the first ever meeting that I had had with anyone from a super fund and I only had it because the accountant told me I had to go and see the representative from my super fund to, to find out a bit more about how much money I had and what the plan was and to, to get my finances in order. And so it was a very regular meeting, I guess. Nothing special happened and it wasn't until the meeting had finished and I'd walked away that I had this thought and I thought, hang on, I'll just go and ask him one question. And so I rushed back to the table and I said, oh, by the way, was I meant to tell you what to do with that money? And uh, he reassured me and he said, no, 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 it's all taken care of. You're in the default option. And I said, oh, does that mean there are other options? And uh, he looked at me and he rolled his eyes and said, oh, look, there is this one greenie option for people who have a problem with investing in mining, alcohol or tobacco. And then there was silence. And I said, um, did you just say tobacco? And he said, yes. And I said, so are you telling me I'm currently investing in tobacco? And he said, oh, yes, everyone is. And uh, that was a big moment for me. At the time, I was a, a full-time specialist radiation oncologist. One third of all cancers worldwide are caused by tobacco. So you can't be an oncologist without realising exactly the impact that tobacco has on individuals and communities and people who were otherwise on track for a very long, healthy life. And so to find out at that moment that I'd been spending all of my life trying to help people suffering from tobacco, yet at the very same time, my own money was invested in the companies that made the products that were killing them, it was quite something. And so I haven't really slept very well since. Yeah, yeah. And so I think, you know, this is something that's really central to this podcast. And we talk a lot about that a lot of people have bumped up against this on all different sort of ethical issues that hang on, my default fund is invested in XYZ, whether it's fossil fuels or gambling, and tobacco is kind of thrown in there just as another another line. But do you see it as different? Do you see it as a, a different factor in terms of how investment managers make that decision? I think that there are many very challenging issues for the finance sector. And I think tobacco is one of them. As you mentioned, or you mentioned a couple of them there. I mean, in addition, there's alcohol, gambling, pornography, fossil fuels, uh, all sorts of different energy production. There's ocean plastic, human rights, there's war, there's violence, there's supply chain management. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of issues. And I think that uh, it's really important that we don't try to have a competition on which is the worst or most evil thing. I think we should acknowledge they're all important issues and they're all challenging. And the key is to match the issue with the appropriate tool that the finance sector has at its disposal to deal with that issue. And I'm sure your listeners would be very familiar with the common tools that we talk about in finance. So is engagement the right strategy? Is a best of sector approach the right strategy? What about ESG integration? What about impact or, or thematic investing? And if none of those work or none of those are relevant, then you might land on an exclusion. And early on in this work, I really only spoke about tobacco, but very quickly, as you've pointed out, people started to raise all of these other issues. And so we quickly moved to try to help financial organisations craft a framework that links the issue with the appropriate tool or tools to address that issue. Okay, and so that's a big leap. You were a doctor who didn't know much about even where your super was invested. I assume not, not a huge amount about that's finance. It. Exactly. And here you are now uh -huh. building frameworks <laughs> for these uh, these big fundies who who should know it far better than anyone. 
I think that while Australia has been at the forefront of some of these discussions in terms of sustainable, ethical, responsible finance, now we go all around the world. So we've had an impact in 22 different countries. Different countries are up to different points in that journey. And so wherever we go, we try to add value and improve that process wherever we are in the world. And I'm sure your listeners would be very familiar with the idea that I think the world is going through wave after wave after wave of developing sustainability frameworks and then refining them and then improving them and then moving on and constantly tweaking and pushing things forwards. And that list that we mentioned of all those tricky issues, that list is actually getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's only going to increase. And so we encourage finance leaders to have a very pragmatic approach, start somewhere, don't feel that you have to be totally um, an expert on every single subject on day one, but start somewhere, let's build a framework and then you know move on from there. Yeah, yeah, so practical. But I'd love to go back just to that moment. You walked out of that meeting, you're like, hang on, oh my God, my money's invested in tobacco. This is outrageous. Where to then? What was the first step? My sentiment was really one of being undermined, first of all. I just really felt that all the work I was doing, all the work my colleagues were doing, it felt like the whole hospital was trying so hard and and doing so much to address the issue of tobacco, yet without really meaning to and without really even thinking about it, business as usual in the superannuation sector in Australia was working against us. And so I just thought, my goodness, this just makes no sense. This conversation is missing. And it's somewhere that needs some attention. I mean, right then and there, I just thought, I can't let that go. I cannot let that go. Not knowing what I knew and given the the impact of tobacco and then suddenly realising that I had something to do with the financing of tobacco. It just felt very uncomfortable. So a couple of weeks later, it was a Friday afternoon and every Friday afternoon, all of the radiation oncologists were rostered one after the other to present an interesting patient to all the other radiation oncologists. And my turn came up just a couple of weeks later and instead of presenting an interesting patient, I presented this as an issue. And it was uh, obviously a very simple presentation at the time because I didn't speak finance back then and I I wasn't really, um, really across how the finance sector worked. But I just explained to everybody in the room what I knew. And by then I had asked my super fund representative to get back to me to explain which tobacco shares I had. And he had explained, so he'd called me back and he had said, look, in your international shares, your top five holdings are number one, British American tobacco, number two, Imperial tobacco, number three wasn't a tobacco company, but number four was Philip Morris and number five was the Swedish match company. That was what I presented to my team. And straight away, the head radiation oncologist, she said, look, you need to tell the CEO of the hospital. So I did that and he rang me back one day later and he said, look, I'd like you to present to the CEO and the investment team at the big super fund for all of the workers at our hospital. It was it was health super. They don't exist anymore. They've merged into first state super. And so about a month later, there I was in the CEO's office doing a presentation, my first one ever, to a finance team. And uh, that's turned into thousands of presentations and meetings in dozens of countries all across the world now. Yeah, it's an incredible story. Can you can you wind us back to that first meeting and the feeling there? I mean, you would have, I can imagine the flurry of research and, and getting in there and the nerves, but did you did it all come out? There would have been so much passion there. I imagine that can really help because if you just speak from the heart, it comes out. 
I do remember the day very much because I was quite overwhelmed by all the numbers in the finance sector. And I remember that Health Super had total assets under management of $8 billion. And to the average doctor walking around, we don't speak in billions and trillions. That's not that's not language that rolls off our tongues. So I was walking around thinking, wow, I'm going to be meeting the $8 billion man <laughs> this afternoon. And I was quite overwhelmed and, and a little bit in shock. And, and you're right, I had done some research and uh, I had started to learn a bit about the language of finance. And if you all just would like a laugh now, I'll tell you that I didn't know anything about even the word or the concept fiduciary duty because no doctors do. That's not what we do. But of course, the first time you read that word fiduciary, I didn't even know how to pronounce it. So I was Googling, how do you pronounce the word fiduciary? And I was watching on YouTube, fiduciary, fiduciary. And I rang my dad because he was an accountant. And I said, dad, can you just put this word in a sentence for me? And no, another one, another one. What exactly, what, what exactly does it mean? So that's how green I was, I, you know, really very, very new to the concept of finance. But I just stuck to what I knew and it became very apparent that in the finance sector, the issue of tobacco had just really never been on the agenda, certainly not in mainstream finance. There are a few boutique financial organisations that had been tobacco-free for many years, so some religious ones, uh, deliberately labelled ethical funds. You know, they adopted that many, many years ago. But for mainstream finance... It just hadn't been on the agenda and it became very clear to me that it that needed to change. Yeah, Oleg, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing. You've come so far. And I think language is a huge part of it. That's something we talk about a lot. There are these terms, sustainable investing, ethical investing, impact investing. They have nuances, but still people in the industry who work on this every day don't have agreed definitions. And then fiduciary is an, in, an interesting one, the fiduciary duty of an investment manager to behave in the best uh don't worry, I know what it is now. <laughs> well, exactly. But even that's changed, right? Sure, in the last absolutely. Five years in terms it's matured of, and refined. Yeah, that we can't we can't divest because um, we may lose returns when that's now shifted to if you don't consider health effects, regulation effects of tobacco being banned, of regulation against fossil fuels, then that's, um, you know, breaking That's the, the risk duty, now. Right? That's the risk. So, uh, you know, all of these things are moving and you're a part of that and that's obviously part of your conversations. Another term is engagement. And this is something that I hear most often. It's something that I, you know, I think that there are some industries where divestment might be a sledgehammer and it's not as effective because if you maintain your shares, you have a, a voice, you can sit in the room and you can vote at the AGM, you can put your hand up and, and you can maybe steer the company in another direction. Tobacco really seems different in that way. How do you see that? That's it. You know, this is a fundamental point, which is that engagement with the tobacco industry is futile. And uh, the only acceptable outcome would be that you sit down with the tobacco industry and ask them to cease their business. There's no grey, there's no nuance, there is no sustainable tobacco, there's no responsible tobacco, there's no ethical tobacco. The only outcome we want is for that industry to end. So it really is absolute, you're in or you're out. And when it comes to engagement, it's certainly not me and my team that are suggesting that engagement is futile. In fact, the UN has a non-engagement policy with the tobacco industry. The World Health Organization has a non-engagement policy with the tobacco industry, which is a very strong position for those organizations. And the reason is that engaging with the tobacco industry has never resulted in less human death or suffering. And that's quite something I always say to people, 
doctors are taught never to say the word never because there's always an exception somewhere, but this is the time when you can use that word. So it is not an effective strategy and it's not recommended by the United Nations. So, you know, you're certainly backed up by some very well-respected international organisations if you take that stance. And in Australia, when the work started, no one ever really bat an eyelid when we sort of straight away put across our engagement. And then when the work started to spread globally, I first of all went to the UK and in one week I had a whole stack of meetings in London, over 25 meetings in one week. And I was talking about this issue and about 23 times I heard back from the other side of the table, people say, oh no, we know tobacco's a problem, we engage. And I was really quite surprised and, and I'll never forget saying to people, but, but what do you do? Like what happens? And um, one woman said, oh, look, since we've engaged, this tobacco company has put another woman on the board. They've improved their gender diversity. And I was like, yes, okay, but what else? And other things were like, you know, they've improved their CEO compensation transparency. They've improved their audit accountability. The bottom line is that we really need to be focused on what we're trying to achieve with engagement. And that is uh, we're trying to reduce the extraordinary human death and suffering that tobacco causes. It's an estimated 8 million deaths per year at the moment and the world's on track for 1 billion tobacco deaths this century. 1 billion, there's only 7 billion of us. So it's the world's biggest health challenge and so we really need to deeply consider this issue of engagement and certainly the global health sector and the UN uh, would certainly recommend that that is not an effective strategy. And so you're targeting the investment sector, that's starving them of capital, divesting. And, you know, we come up against this this wall of we've got an ill, it's a negative externality, the negatives on society aren't factored into the price of the product. With many things that kind of works, but the question is, why is it even legal? Where is the regulation? Is that an angle, a, an arrow in your quiver that you kind of deal with as well, that you talk to governments about? Taxation, you know, obviously the taxes are huge in this plain packaging in Australia and, and that's sort of a, a movement with lots of activists working away. Do you sort of align with that? Well, there's many, many anti-tobacco groups throughout the world and they're all doing incredible work in very tough circumstances. So tobacco control is a, is a very challenging sector to be in. But we're the only organisation in the world that's actually working with the finance sector. So you actually said then you're targeting the finance sector. In fact, we create great partnerships with the finance sector and the finance sector have been the greatest champions of our work and many significant leaders in the finance sector have joined our advisory council and actively help us to connect and to spread the word and to advance our work. So we don't look at it um, quite that same way. We are really you know, thrilled to have such great connections in the finance sector and to, to push things forwards. Partnerships are really powerful. I think that's great. And I think that's great to, to highlight that, that this is not a battle, that um, look, I guess there is an enemy, but it's not finance. That's it. It's not. It's not at all. Actually, they're our, they're our very good friends. That's right. But then the other side of it would be regulation. So there are 181 countries that have signed the UN Tobacco Control Treaty. So that's the only global health treaty that exists. And that means all of those countries have committed to implementing a very long list of regulations that are aimed at protecting children from tobacco and making sure that they don't smoke and never take it up and encouraging current smokers to quit. 
And so every country in the world is up to it, or the 181 countries that have signed up are all up to different points of implementation of that treaty. But you're asking about whether tobacco should just be banned or made illegal. At some point that might happen. At the minute, if we just look at Australia, there's about 2.7 million smokers. 90% of them regret that they started. Nearly all of them started when they were children or in their early teens. And more than 50% try to quit every year. So in sort of a health lens, we look at those uh, smokers as people that we really need to support to try to help them quit as soon as possible, as effectively as possible and really stay off cigarettes. And so I think it's pretty unlikely that in the short term we'll just make tobacco illegal. But in the long term, people have talked um, and globally people have worked on the concept of a of a tobacco-free generation where you might choose a day or a, a year. So, for example, you might say, look, 2015, any child born after that year can no longer legally purchase tobacco to allow some kind of transition to a totally tobacco-free world. Anyway, that's an idea. It hasn't happened anywhere, but that's the, the health sector's talking about that. I think in Australia, we've come so far. I mean, I think smokers are almost second-class citizens now, um, you know, forced into the, the stairwell and you can't smoke here, you can't smoke in pubs, you can barely smoke outside. The progress is great. But then you look at Indonesia, China, there's probably more smokers in Indonesia than there are people in Australia. Well, in China, there's, there's over 300 million smokers. That's right, that's right. <laughs> so the numbers are shocking when, yeah. when you look at some of the very big populated countries. In India, it's 267 million smokers. So it's enormous in those countries. Yeah. And so we do know that tobacco companies have sort of turned their attention to countries that have far less robust policy and regulation in place, particularly Southeast Asia and Africa. And so there are many great health groups around the world helping those countries to catch up when it comes to implementing regulation. It's a very tough thing to do. Mm. The tobacco industry is a very fierce opponent of that, but we're making great progress. And just sort of highlights how important your work is. That's right. I mean, it's a this is a very big global issue. It's not going to be fixed quickly, mm. but it's so uplifting to find great leaders in the finance sector who do want to look at this issue, consider it, and then change. And, and changing gears a little bit, I'd like to talk about influence. And I think influencers is a bit of a buzzword and can be negative in some ways, but I'd use that term for you that you're a very powerful influencer in the best way possible. I definitely don't have enough followers on Twitter to, to claim <laughs> that title. But. Well, I think, I think if we measured your impact, it would be a lot higher in terms of positive impact. Um, impact measurement, of course, a big growing framework, as you talked about early on. But in this idea of influence, I mean, that's part of the reason I started this podcast is to try and influence people. But I, I think there's a fine line between influencing people and helping them understand better ways forward than, you know, the nanny state and pandering to people and, and sort of, you know, wagging the finger. So how do you, you know, find that fine line? I think you're defining, you know, your work with the investment managers as being partnerships. I think that's really important. I'd just love to understand that the journey you've been on in walking into these rooms with people that um, are used to having their own way, very good salespeople, very, you know, working hard to, to be influential themselves and having someone from outside the tent come in and, and try and tell them how it is and know you've got to change your ways. How have you, yeah, navigated that uh, influence work? Well, look, I think it's an art form. Um, and so I think you know, I, I do speak to people all the time about 
influenceful stop as a, as a concept because obviously it's something that can be applied to whatever you're trying to do in whatever setting it is. And I think that you definitely have to have your own style and really be true to yourself. And so having a genuine partnership and creating a genuine collaborative dialogue is my style that really fits. And I think that being a cancer doctor and having lots of discussions with patients over the years about very technical things, explaining to a patient the details of their radiation and what it's going to be like and potential side effects and how we're going to manage them as a team. I think that that probably really set me up for these conversations that I have in the finance sector. It's very professional, very diplomatic. I certainly would never suggest that I'm telling anybody what to do. I'm more presenting information and asking people to consider things. And it certainly does require a lot of patience and uh, waiting until the right time, knowing when to give a bit of a nudge and knowing when to back off. I guess our, our mantra at Tobacco Free Portfolios really right from the start has been that we name and fame. And uh, that really is at our very heart. So when an organisation comes to us or we go to them, we work with them very quietly behind the scenes for as long as it takes. And if they do choose to go tobacco free, we will often work with them to create a moment or an event where they can make that announcement. And we really try to shine a spotlight on them and hold them up as a great example as a leader in the finance sector. And hopefully that will encourage others to follow suit. But it really does obviously make them feel good about making a great decision and it gives us a boost because the whole movement pushes forwards. So I think that for us that's been a, you know, that's been a great part of our style and it really fits with me personally as, as a very nice way to do work with people. Mm. It sounds like empathy is a big part of that, putting yourself in those shoes and, and I'd imagine that's important for a doctor. Um, now, not all doctors have, are very empathetic, but it certainly would help in that bedside manner. But it's not something that the finance industry is renowned for. So, you know, I can see that contribution would help and, and being able to, yeah, you know, put yourself in their shoes. And I think this, this field, this movement of trying to find a new way forward for our economy, impact investing, sustainable investing, trying to move beyond the, the binary of profit and loss and try and measure other things that our investment, the impact we're having there. How have you seen the, I guess, the finance industry deal with this in terms of respond and maybe shift even in the 10 years that you've been working with your partners in, in how that they're sort of embracing these these new metrics and, and trying to understand that there are so many different stakeholders with lots of different wants and needs and that they need to actually start thinking about that. Absolutely. I think, you know, going back to sort of influence and another style or another strategy, definitely learning the language of finance was crucial for us and learning what it was like to sit opposite us in a meeting and really trying to understand what are the barriers, what are the challenges, how does this work, even if they wanted to do it, what might be holding them up and how can we help them sidestep whatever those issues are. But what I found very helpful was to look at the risks that the tobacco industry faces moving forwards and going over them in more depth with the finance sector. So the first one is looking at the regulatory risk and the fact that there is this UN treaty and we have got 181 countries simultaneously implementing regulation at the same time, which reduces demand. So being really up to date on that and having great colleagues around the world in tobacco control give us up-to-date information that we can then stick under the noses of the finance sector has been very helpful. 
Things like the litigation risk has been something that many research houses in the finance sector are aware of, but we can often give really up-to-date information about that. And it's the business model that's being called out when it comes to tobacco companies. So at the moment, the tobacco industry operates in a fashion whereby they externalise all of their costs to the community. We all pay for all the health costs incurred by or, or caused by tobacco. And uh, while they're externalising costs, they're privatising profits which is something that we really need to reconsider in 2020. Are we happy for companies to do that, especially when those costs have been estimated to be more than $1 trillion US dollars per year globally? It's an extraordinary amount of money. The next thing we look at is supply chain risk. And before I was involved in this, I had absolutely no idea, but the tobacco industry significantly relies on child labour in the supply chain. And as you know, in finance, there's very intense scrutiny of supply chains at the moment. And so we just put that on the agenda as well. The next risk is the environmental risk. And I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the huge conversation and dialogue around the world regarding ocean plastic. Many people are very surprised to learn that the number one ocean plastic is in fact cigarette filters. So there's a, another risk. Are we just allowing this industry to have this massive impact on our global environment and ecosystem? And then there's also the reputation risk of being associated with companies that make products that kill 8 million people every year. And so we go through all of those risks in detail with the people we work with. And in different places, different things will often resonate more or less. We do also look at the financial performance of tobacco companies. And if you just look at the share price up until 2017, tobacco companies had done well. But in fact, from the middle of 2017 up until recently, tobacco companies have been extremely shaky. In fact, in 2018, the tobacco sector was the worst performing sector on the market and um, had a very significant drop. Overall, it was a drop of 41% compared to a drop that year of 9% across the market. And so it's sort of all adding up for people to say, really, why not? <laughs> why not go tobacco-free? Because there's really no reasons left now. And that offering, I mean, that's a sophisticated consultant offering. And so can you tell us a bit more about tobacco-free portfolios, how you sort of structure the organisation, where it's going? And um, yeah, I mean, is it running as a not-for-profit at the moment? That's right. So we're set up as a not-for-profit in Australia and we have DGR1 status so we can accept tax-deductible donations, which is fantastic. And we have a range of individual supporters and um, health groups that support us. And we have now an office in the UK. So I have a UK director who leads our work there and in Europe. And we've just appointed a USA director who is now based in New York. We've been very busy. We've just appointed a project manager for our flagship global initiative, which is called the Pledge, the Tobacco Free Finance Pledge, and she'll be based in New York. And we've built out our team uh, considerably. So there's now, when I say built out our team considerably, that's in still very tiny terms. So there's now 10 of us, but we certainly hope that we can get some more support and, and, and grow. And uh, ideally, the dream is to have a presence in all major financial markets. Okay. And so in the past, it's been helping firms sort of think through the frameworks they could use, but now you've come up with a concrete kind of accreditation system, a, a pledge, a badge. That's right. So our new program is called the Stamp of Approval Program. 
And this is now available in Australia for financial organisations that would like to take part. So if a super fund is tobacco free, they can sign up. When they sign up, they will have an assessment to check that they meet the criteria for tobacco free that we have set in consultation with some terrific financial organisations in Australia. And if they meet that criteria, they can adopt this stamp of approval. They can put it on their website, put it in their member communications and um, clearly demonstrate to members and uh, potential new members that they're tobacco free and um, really demonstrate their leadership in the ESG sustainability space and in the process help push forwards uh, the global movement. That's it. And I think I think we often I often have this problem of of talking about institutional kind of investment issues and and decision making, but it's then the retail level, the everyday investor they come to me, which fund should I go with? Difficult to make those decisions. But that's this right. is a really that's it. key and thing they can look to. Totally a key thing and something that's super simple because uh, my team and I, we, we are overwhelmed with emails from people in the community who very rightly want to know where is their money invested and is their super fund investing in tobacco? It's such a good question and it should be much easier for people to get the answer. And although many super funds do have it somewhere buried in a product disclosure statement, the truth is that no one reads product disclosure statements. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but <laughs> that is the reality. And if you do read one, you're probably not going to get to page 17, paragraph three, sentence number two, where it says, actually, you're not investing in tobacco. It's just exhausting. And the language is very hard work. And you probably need to have quite a sophisticated degree of financial literacy to understand what's in those statements. Mm. And that's just too hard for the average person. It's just that's just not realistic. So we're really hoping that this is a very pragmatic, very simple solution. Just pop the stamp of approval on your website, stick it in your brochure, and then all of your members can be really confident that they're not investing in big tobacco. Hmm. And then winding back to the investment side, if there was a super fund and they said, oh, we think we're tobacco free. And that's a funny thing to say, because it's like, well, surely you know, but you know, index funds can often have really big lists. I mean, is that sort of the key issue that they have in, in really being 100% sure? Are there some other little issues that the fundies out there can look at? You're right. At a very high level, it sounds so simple, go tobacco free. Unfortunately, the finance sector is complex and there are many, many complicated products out there. And it's true that not all of them are available in ex-tobacco format right now in 2020. So we've taken a very pragmatic approach for the stamp of approval. And if financial organisations are interested in the program, they can contact us, sign up, and um, we'll help work through that. And it's true that with time, as more and more financial products that are available in tobacco-free format become available, we might tighten up the requirements for what it takes to get a stamp of approval. But at the moment, we've taken a very pragmatic approach and, uh, you know, we certainly hope that the industry will transition to that 100% perfectly tobacco-free place over time. Okay. And that uh, program's rolling out this year? That's true. So the program is now open for application. So 
Uh, we're here in Sydney today. We just had an information session with a whole stack of financial organisations up here. We had one in Melbourne last week. We have a terrific program manager for the Stamp of Approval program, Dr Kate Maxfield, and she and I will be uh, doing a bit of a roadshow around Australia, having lots of one-on-one meetings and different information sessions, pushing it out so that organisations that are interested have the opportunity to sign up. And in August, we have a public-facing awareness campaign. Now, we've never been public-facing before, but this is the time when we are going to dip our toe into, into that arena, simply because we know the community really wants this product and people are constantly asking us which funds are tobacco-free and which ones aren't. And um, we know that the finance sector wants this product as well. The ones that have done it have uh, been hounding us for some time saying, look, can you develop something so that we can really clearly show that we're tobacco free? So we'll be launching a more public facing awareness campaign in August. And that includes a whole range of print media, TV, radio, and uh, a very nice event that's going to be uh, hosted by the wonderful Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Sally Cap, at the Melbourne Town Hall. And I'm in the process of trying to organise a, a very fancy event for the Sydney Siders as well. Very good, very good. I mean, it's a staggering achievement, something that started as a side gig um, and that you were doing you know, on the side as you were a, uh, a radiation oncologist. Do you still have a bit of a, a practice on the side running there? Yeah, so I've, I've still got a very small practice on the side, but this is the thing that just totally took over my life. So it's, uh, it's one of those things that almost chose me. It's a seven-day-a-week thing. I never stop thinking about it. I'm always working on the next idea or refining or tweaking my you know, next initiative. And, and our big focus for this year globally is moving forwards with the pledge, so the Tobacco-Free Finance Pledge. That's our big global initiative. And we launched that at the United Nations in 2018 with the support of President Macron and the Australian Prime Minister, who at the time was Prime Minister Turnbull. And uh, yeah, we launched that pledge at the UN. And at the moment, there are 130 signatories to that pledge, some of the world's biggest financial organisations. And they have total assets under management of 8.25 trillion US dollars. And we're hoping by the two year anniversary, which is in about six months time, that that will be more than 10 trillion US dollars. Yeah. Oh, look, such a powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing it. Really love the uh, the heart there and um, and bringing together two different industries and seeing that, you know, reminding people that, that finance really is powerful and we can all have an impact ourselves. Before you go, I'd love to get a book recommendation. Oh, my god! No, I don't want to put you on the spot. It could just that be is... uh, maybe some, even a, a movie, a documentary on Netflix, even if it's just whatever's on your side table. But uh, now, The side do... table, I should send you a picture of what my side table <laughs> looks like. It's got about 24 books on it. But the one on top right now, someone just gave it to me and it was How to Live a Plastic-Free Life. All right. And I think that's a very interesting thing in 2020 because there's all this, as I'm sure your listeners know, there's a lot of discussion around how to reduce plastic and certainly single-use plastics. And I certainly think we can all be part of that. And, um, you know, my interest, of course, is very deep in that area simply because of the problem with cigarette filters. So, yeah, that, I, I haven't read it all yet. I'm only about one chapter in, but maybe when I come back I can give you an update. All right. Good. So can you remember the uh, name of the author? No, I can't. I'm no, sorry. that's right. We that's can put really it in the bad. show notes afterwards. Yeah, put it in the show yeah, yeah. notes. So we can follow sorry it about up. that. No, no, the books are great. That's one of the things that people uh, say they get a lot of value of. They sort of enjoy the feel, I don't know, get a connection with the, the person they're listening to and, and take it further with read what they are. Where can people find 
sort of information about about the, your organisation? What's the best place? Social media, website? Yeah, our website is just www.tobaccofreeportfolios.org. But if you just Google anything about tobacco-free finance, we'll come up pretty quickly. The pledge is the tobacco-free finance pledge, which uh, we'd love people to sign up to. And if you're interested in our stamp of approval program, it would be great if you can contact either me or our program manager, Dr. Kate Maxfield. Can you put a little link in Will do. for that? And then, <laughs> um, yeah, we'd love to love to kick off some great conversations. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. All right, well, let's leave it there. Got to let you go, but thank you so much for all of that. It was great. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.